Welcome to Ethics and the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears. Today, we have a very timely topic with a professor who knows everything you want to know about this topic. Welcome, Professor Sharika Crawford. Thank you for the invitation, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I'm not overdoing the comment. Uh, not only do you teach history here at the Naval Academy as a historian of Latin America, you've traveled, you've studied, you know this stuff. And today we're going to talk about migration. And let me just start it off by saying, what does migration mean to the U.S.? Well, migration is important. And, and let me distinguish um, by terminology. So migration um, typically is used to describe people who move temporarily. And, and many of us have. I'm originally from Michigan, and I've migrated to Maryland. And then we also have the term immigration, where we're usually thinking about people coming from a foreign nation who are permanently resettling into a new country. And for the United States, we forget but perhaps we, we don't take it seriously how this nation is fundamentally formed on the basis of people who immigrated to this country. And I mean, immigrated by choice, you know, in the 1800s and 1900s until right now and in, in the 2000s and the 21st century, as well as those who were forced to, to move to the United States when we're thinking about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, fundamentally, the, the people who populate um, the U.S. today are those who are the descendants of all those different individuals who chose to make the United States their home permanently. Let me ask you something relative to that comment. I really love what you said. Immigration is the decision you make when you leave a place, or is it the decision you make when you arrive and decide to stay? Is there a difference? That's a really, well, you made a nice, you sparse the difference. Um, I'm not sure if um, we, it would be helpful for maybe today's discussion to think of it in that way. I think both are important. Um, migrants, you know, people who may be moving for work, for example, um, may not decide to stay in the country where they've found work. Um, they may continue to, to move on and therefore they're kind of viewed as migrants. But you're right, the process of immigration, it's not as clear cut that those who arrive um, to a new country are going to stay. Um, sometimes um, there are institutional processes, legal systems that will determine whether or not they can stay or not. And sometimes it's just personal choice, whether or not the, the country in which they've arrived is, is going to be the home destination. How does language, culture, color, religion, all those things that might might make someone appear to be different, how does that challenge mean to becoming an American? Well, um, this is a process that we continue to see play out um, century after century in the case of U.S. history. In the 19th century, when we think about immigration, we typically think about the stories of the Irish, maybe the German, the English, of course, um, many, many more um, European immigrants from Southern Eastern Europe, from Poland, Russia, Italy, Jews from um, Eastern Europe, uh, the Asian population from China or Japan, and of course, Latin Americans coming from as far south as Chile to Mexico all came in the 1800s. But because of um, different perceptions about their contributions to the culture of being um, an American, um, some of them face tremendous discrimination. Now, language is one way in which um, 
these communities may have experienced barriers, particularly if the language in which they spoke was not valued by those who were in power, those who were making the decisions about whether or not they can stay, they can become citizens. I think about the experiences of um, immigrants coming from East Asia or coming from Latin America. Um, Sometimes it had to do with religion in terms of whether or not you were Catholic. Fail to remember how important it was in the 20th century when John F. Kennedy became president of the United States as an Irish American Catholic. Catholics were viewed very terribly in the United States in the 1800s because of anti-Catholic bias. This was viewed as a Protestant nation. And so there were barriers in which um, Catholic immigrants also had to face alongside um, smaller numbers of uh, Jewish European populations. And so there's been a process each century of identifying which immigrants can assimilate, can integrate into this concept of being an American, which is sort of predicated on the understanding that nominally they're Christian, perhaps they're Protestant. Nominally, they have at least adopted what we think of as kind of um, behavior and, and habits that are similar to English-speaking populations um, around the world, particularly from England, but also Canada or Australia, New Zealand. And it's been a struggle in each century to see which immigrant population can find a space for themselves in this kind of um, concept of what it means to become an American. Let me ask you this from a 21st century perspective. So you're, you're mentioning the Irish, the Germans, the Poles, uh, the Jews from around the world. But was it any different in the 19th century and the 20th century? I mean, we had a lot of space then in this country. We had open areas in this country. Is it any different today? And can we say, well, it's a different posture for immigration today because America's full? Uh, I think we need to push back on concepts of thinking of the United States of America continentally as being full, um, as it seems to suggest that there's no physical space. Of course, there are areas that are heavily urbanized, particularly if you live in the area that we are in today in Annapolis. But when we think about um, states um, um, closer to um, what we might call the West, thinking about Wyoming or Montana, Kansas, Oklahoma, today we still have calls from states in Nebraska and in Oklahoma and Kansas where they will give you tremendous incentives to live there. So I think there has been a popular perception that somehow the country is so full with people we can't accept new arrivals, which seems to be predicated on a long stem um, argumentation that we see erupted in the 1900s and eventually or earlier in the 1880s that somehow we are closed. We're closed to certain immigrants who we've deemed not to be um, positive contributors to the American society. I'm not as convinced that demographically or terms in, in terms of territorial space, we simply don't have room for new arrivals. So let's shift our focus south of here to Latin America, to your specialty. What's been the relationship of Latin America 
to the U.S. and vice versa? Yeah, the U.S. has um, a complicated relationship with the region. On the first hand, we can point out that they've been long-term partners, keeping in mind that the United States served as the model, the first republic to establish itself in the Western Hemisphere. And, And in 50 years thereafter, we saw the emergence of a variety of independent states throughout Latin America, whether I'm talking about South America, the Caribbean, that was controlled by um, Spain in particular, or Central America. And so there, there's a, there's kind of an origin kind of story that links them together as former colonies that gain independence. But we could also um, point out that throughout the end of the middle to late 19th century into the 20th century, that partnership became complicated by competing interests, ones in which the United States, in order to industrialize, required um, access to raw materials, sometimes geostrategic locations in the sea that um, increasingly um, led them to intervene, um, sometimes by invitation by those who were in government in those various nations, and sometimes they were not invited. And that has allowed fractures in that relationship. So we have strong partners with Colombia. We've had strong partners with Brazil for for decades, for very long periods of time. But we've also had moments when we have been viewed as interlopers, um, whether we're talking about invasions into Nicaragua or Haiti or um, if we're talking about revolutionary politics during the Cold War years. We also forget that one of our largest economic partners continues to be um, our partners in Latin America. Um, By and far, our largest in the region is still Mexico. Though we do have continually economic um, trade agreements with those in the southern portion of South America, that being in Brazil and and, and Chile and and the like. So Latin America, um, though we don't see it in the press as often any longer um, in terms of that relationship, the diplomatic, the economic, even the cultural relationship, you know, sharing of movies and food and um, because of the populations have moved back and forth. Um, Latin America, I would argue, continues and um, will be in the future a very important international partner to the United States, though with a complicated backstory and history. And as naval officers, we have to remember that complication and be, be at least at least sensitive to it. But, you know, as we pivot from Europe to Asia, uh, as we cast our eyes from one side to another side of the world, figuratively, what can you tell us about what we should do relative to Latin America? As a junior officer, what's the best way not to forget that we have a strong partner that's very close to us down south. Well, um, you're, you're getting into territory that usually a historian, we don't often um, weigh in on what we should do for future, but I'll do my best. I think, well, one, I, I, I do know that our, our officers are very much involved in Southcom and, and continually are working alongside their partners, particularly because of the issue of narco-trafficking that has not gone away. Some of the production of um, certain drug commodities clearly are coming out of um, Latin America. They're produced there and then they're distributed from there. And, and the U.S. has um, important geopolitical reasons why they want to prevent the, the spread of those of those commodities. But what I also would kind of have our officers keep in mind is that 
over the last 50, 60 years, um, Latin American um, political institutions have matured um, in terms of democratic institutions. Um, economically, we've seen Latin American countries, at least prior to the pandemic, um, have grown in terms of um, making some strides and closing the inequality gap. So you have a rising, um, vibrant middle class in certain Latin American countries who are eager to engage with you know, the outside world. And of course, the United States is our, you know, is an important neighbor. They're, they're interested in America, interested in learning English, um, engaged in kind of American affairs from afar. Um, so that's an opportunity to strengthen relations. And we need to also remember that as we're pivoting east or to the Pacific, I guess, to be more clear, the Pacific is actually pivoting to the Americas. So we, we've seen the increasing um, efforts of the Chinese to conduct business in various Latin American countries. Um, and it's not a, and, and we kind of think of it as something new. It's new in terms of the Chinese government perhaps spearheading it. It's not new with the arrival of Chinese populations, keeping in mind that Chinese migrants, as they moved to California during the gold rush, we also saw Chinese um, immigrant laborers move to Cuba in the aftermath of, um, or as slavery was declining and, and they're on sugar plantations and they're building railways in Panama. So um, there is been a long history of Asia. And I think we need to be mindful of that, that we're not the only partner that Latin American nations um, can rely or depend on, and that we're going to see increasingly other nations come to the fore who are interested in the same resources, perhaps interested in pursuing new commercial relationships. And we might see a Latin American um, future in which is much more dynamic um, in terms of their geopolitics, their kind of international positioning. Very well said. The new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. is looking towards the Americas as we're looking towards China. So we clearly have to uh, make sure we understand uh, what uh, what is going on in our, our nearest neighbors. Professor Crawford, thank you very much for this conversation. There's a lot more we can talk about, as you said, and I hope we get a chance to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you again. You've been listening to Ethics in the Naval Warrior, produced by the Boeing Leadership Innovation Lab at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. You can find more of our podcasts by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu.